John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, it's a very light week. Uh, all we had from new releases uh, was the 25th anniversary of Schindler's List. And then to pad out the rest of the episode, I just stay homed and binged some stuff on Netflix. So we're going to be talking about Andy Serkis's Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, as well as the Coen Brothers anthology movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and the first season of the new She-Ra reboot, uh, Princesses of Power from DreamWorks. So with that being said, let's get started. What's one worth to you? every justification to kill and we don't the list is life whoever saves one life saves the world in time I will not lie to you. It took me halfway through the week to realize that the reason for the this week being the week of the re-release for the 25th anniversary was because it was Hanukkah. Be, you know, that's how tuned in I am to what's going on around me. So, yeah, I know I didn't think about it at all before, but now, absolutely, that makes perfect sense. And sadly, this movie is just as prescient now as it was when it came out, if not more so, sadly. Uh, that's just the times we're talking about. And I won't get too much into present-day politics. Uh, that's for much more qualified and much more you know passionate people to, to talk about. But as far as this movie goes, I, I don't know if I have that much to say. It, like, 25 years later, and Schindler's List is still one of the most beautifully filmed and tragic movies that Spielberg has ever uh, put to screen. It's one of his best movies ever made. Like, it's definitely, like, top five material. I would not argue with you if you said Schindler's List was Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King. If Stephen King made Schindler's List, that would have been something. <laughs> um, no, if Steven Spielberg's number one movie in your eyes was Schindler's List, I would not argue with you. Like, that is a very valid number one to pick. And this is the same year as Jurassic Park. So the same year he was making Schindler's List, his sort of... That's it. I think I'll talk about that. I have more to say about that than the movie itself. Because, like, yeah, Liam Neeson is actually pretty... Like, young Liam Neeson was a was a fine-looking man. He was a good-looking, handsome fella. And that, But that was, like, the main thing I noticed re-watching it. Um, was, holy crap, Liam Neeson was quite... Like, age has kind of hit him pretty hard. Uh, but but we were talk- my dad was talking about the new uh, Mule trailer, which... Uh, which You'll hear at the end of the episode, and he was saying the same thing. He still remembers Clint Eastwood as like this handsome, rugged uh, young man from the '60s and '70s. And it's hard, to, yeah, it's hard to imagine like these handsome men just go, growing old and looking haggard as life beat them down almost. But um, yeah, like this movie, it's over three hours, and yet I can't think of a single thing to cut. Like. There are movies that are pushing two hours that I would say, yeah, you can cut 20 minutes off of this and it'd be perfect. And the, yet, 
I can't imagine cutting a single frame from Schindler's List. I think Spielberg and his editors knew exactly what to leave in to make this movie work as well as it did. Like, I don't think there's a single thing wasted. I will say that upon rewatching, there are a bit, there are a few bits where it gets a gets a tad melodramatic. I mean, there are the the more tense, tense and you know, heart pounding scenes like the scene in Auschwitz where the women have to go into the showers after he- after you know hearing the stories about what would happen to Jews in the showers, and you know that scene is still works perfectly. But I mean, like. There are some performances where it does kind of feel like they're going in a bit too hard. Like, I mean, Ray Fiennes works great as Amon Goethe, but at the same time, like, part of it almost feels cartoonishly evil. And yet, it's, and yet also, it's hard to say whether or not... I mean, there were people that were as just cold-blooded and sinister as he was. He's not... Like those caricatures exist for a reason because there were people who like most of the most of the Nazis in this movie are, you know, people who think they're on the right side of things. It's like, oh, of course, this makes perfect sense. They're not they're not thinking about it rationally because they, they've been kind of they've kind of bought into the idea that what the, what the Nazis are doing is the right thing to do, and there are correlations you can clearly make to present day administrations around the world. <sighs> Sorry, movie podcast, not politics podcast, but it's hard not to talk about it, and it's hard not to rethink about the fact that the, 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 now this is the time they re-release Schindler's List, not only for its 25th anniversary, but given the current state of affairs. Like, would they have released a, you know, an official, like, non-Fathom event, TCM, tie-in style re-release, if not for the current administration? It's hard to say. Um, so... Going back to the movie, um, I'm trying to think what else I wanted to... Let me pull up my notes, because I don't need to be rambling on the whole time. Um, Yeah, it's amazingly shot. uh, The use of color in this is perfect. Um, It starts in color. I forgot that part. It starts and ends in color. And it fades to gray to the grayscale, uh, black and white style, as as these... um, prayer candles uh during um during this uh recital of prayer by the rabbi at the beginning are going you know are, are kind of as the candles are burning out the once the flame dies that's when it's grayscale and then it doesn't get then it doesn't show color again until the girl with the red coat the iconic girl with the red coat and then um which is which is a lot duller of a red that I, I I saw this time. I, I I always imagined that girl with the red coat was a much brighter red so that she would stand out, but it's actually a muted color of red, I realized. It and it still works. The scene still works perfectly because it draws your eye in and they want you to remember this girl specifically. But I thought it was brighter red for some reason. I don't know. Um Suffice to say that after and then after the girl with the red coat, the only other the last time it goes to color is when they're lighting the candles again. So the candles are the light in the darkness. You know, it's 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 a metaphor. It's symbolism. You know, and it's not like hokey symbolism either. It's very muted, simple symbolism. Like it's like yeah, you can picture that, and you're like, oh yeah, I get that. And it's not like beating you over the head with it or anything. And then the very end is the hammer home of just how many people. Oscar Schindler ended up saving. And that's the thing. 
you, you know, they never shy away from the fact that Oscar Schindler was not the best person. He was not a, a quote-unquote good person. He was a capitalist. He was a businessman. The only reason he used Jews initially was because they were cheaper and they were essentially slave labor. And it only took, and it took until he came to realize what the Nazis were doing for him to kind of use his clout as a businessman to save these Jews. And that's why, want, like, the very end scene with uh, the last lines from Liam Neeson as Oscar Schindler... Um, where he's like, I could have saved more. How much is this gold? How much is this car worth? This could have saved ten. And it's like, okay, was was he really that melodramatic? I feel like that's a. I feel like that's a bit to try and play home the fact that hey, Oscar Schindler is really a good person. So it's hard to say with that. Um, like I said, there were some moments of melodrama that kind of make it feel like, okay, yeah, okay, well, okay, settle down, guys. You don't need to go that over the top. But they're never enough to detract from the movie whereas if you take a movie like um uh like i was talking about this with uh, with some friends over the weekend pearl harbor that one is overwrought with melodrama because michael bay does not know how to direct drama and so here there are some melodramatic moments and there are some that feel very much in the line of like this is cinema this is this is this is you know for your consideration essentially but for the most part that doesn't that is not the bulk of the movie. The bulk of the movie is very, very straightforward, almost almost without music. Like, only very rarely does the score come up to emphasize the the, the mood. Because most of the time, it is pretty silent. And it, he does not want to... And that's the thing. Uh, I, watch from, I remember from watching the really, sadly, underutilized uh, uh, documentary HBO did on him... I really wanted like a long form, almost like three part documentary series digging into uh, Spielberg's backstory. Because I th- feel like if you did like three parts, early career, mid, like height of his career, present day, then you could really tackle just the depth of Spielberg as a filmmaker. And, but the one thing that the, that the documentary mentioned and focused on for a bit was this period of time where while he was directing a big blockbuster in the li- in the same line as Jaws uh, with Jurassic Park, here he was essentially returning to his roots. And he brought up over the, over the course of the documentary and interviews, he will all, he continually brought up the fact that he was never raised Jewish. He was raised secular because the idea, and he always kind of avoided assigning himself, you know, a, a, you know, um, kind of tying himself to Judaism because so much of the 50s aesthetic was White House picket fence wasps and everyone was a wasp, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Someone made a good point over the weekend I saw when they were talking about wasps that came up um, where, uh, why, where uh, shouldn't we assume that they're white? I mean, they are Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> and if some people were, and then some people were suggesting him, the W stood for wealthy Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Which, which I think makes more sense than just white, because who are the black Anglo-Saxon Protestants or the uh, Spanish Anglo-Saxon Protestants? <laughs> um, at any rate, the uh, point is that these were the the, be- the cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. These were the families that, they, that were meant to be idealized and emulated, and Jews did not fit into that. Even after, the, after defeating the Nazis in World War II, Jew- Judaism was not mainstream. It was still considered to be lesser than 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 you know christianity than than traditional uh anglo-saxon protestant lifestyle and if you were a good wholesome american family you couldn't be jewish 
They there weren't Jews on television. There weren't they were Jews making television, sadly, but they couldn't be shown on television unless they were like a minor, you know, like a side character. They weren't the focus of the. They weren't the focus focal point of the story. That wouldn't come to much much later. And so this after re, he read about, I believe, I, I think he read the story that this movie was based on the novel that um, that told Oscar Schindler's life. And he read this and he wanted to make this movie, but he knew. He was not prepared to make this movie. And about the t- about this point in time, in the late night, about the time the eighties were turning into the nineties, his wife um, was kind of encouraging him to revitalize his beliefs. His, I think, his wife. Let me pull this up. I don't want to get this wrong. I want to assume um, anything about his personal life per se, unless I can back it up. Um, but if I remember correctly from the documentary. Uh, his wife is was was born and raised Jewish, and so she helped him to kind of realize his Jewish heritage and accept that this was a part of him, and that he kind of pushed it away for so long that it's now time to you know make it a part of him, part of his life again. Okay, uh, personal life, religion. Grew up in a Jewish household. Okay, no, he did have a bar mitzvah ceremony in Phoenix when he turned 13. Grew away from Judaism as his family moved to various cities during his high school years. That's when uh, they became the only Jews in the neighborhood. And so he used to be involved in synagogue and temple. And he was, and he remember, I remember the story he told was um, that his grandpa was like calling him by his Jewish name. And he was and he was embarrassed by the other kids asking like who's he talk who's that crazy old man talking to with you know using utilizing Yiddish while calling for Stephen and he's like I don't know man I don't know that guy and it, he was he, he later became embarrassed you know he became so embarrassed to be tied to Judaism because he would didn't want to stand out in that way. Um, rediscovered the honor of being a Jew, he says, before he made Schindler's List, when he married Kate Capshaw. Until then, having been a, become a filmmaker, he only left the connection to Judaism when he visited his parents. He says he made the film partly to create something that would confirm my Judaism to my family and myself. Um, okay, no, Kate is a Protestant. That's what it was. And she insisted on converting to Judaism when she married him. She spent a year studying, did the mikvah, the whole thing. She chose to do a full conversion before we were married in 1991. When she married me after becoming a Jew, when she married me after becoming a Jew. I think that more than anything else brought me back to Judaism. So that it was his own personal life that kind of reinvigorated his beliefs and his, and his, and his own heritage. And the fact that his, the love of his life, who I believe he's still married to, I think he's still married to Kate, um... Yeah, divorced Amy Irving in 1989. Been married since 1991. They're about to hit 20 years of marriage. That's sweet. Still sucks in Temple Temple of Doom, but that's not her fault. I feel like that's one of those things like, here, honey, you can be in my movie. And they, I feel like that's a thing where she's gotten much better. I think she's a producer as well. She like, helps him on the producing side. So she's kind of... You know, it made up for the fact that, uh, you know, she's considered like one of the least, one of the least uh, good, one of the worst um, uh, Indiana Jones sidekick girls, whatever. But, you know, she's not concerned about that anymore because, I mean, she's helping raise raise a family and be part of, uh, and be part of this life and helping Steven out behind the scenes. And I hear, I, you know, I haven't heard a bad thing about her since Temple of Doom. 
Also, he was from Cincinnati. He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, which I keep forgetting. He's in Ohio. He's a born. He, he wasn't. Bo- he wasn't raised Buckeye, but he was born Buckeye. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that was the whole thing behind this movie, which is why have after rewatch after watching the documentary that I, you know, that rewatching Schindler's List now with that knowledge in mind is like that makes so much sense. This is this is Steven Spielberg. Returning to the returning to the cloth, returning to the life he grew up in, and turned away for so many years, thinking that's not he couldn't be a part of the American dream if he was Jewish. And now this is him saying, "Well, no. I mean, my wife has devoted her devoted herself to becoming part of my faith. I should do the same." And this was his return. Yeah, this is his like, per, uh, per, what's the term? Um, it's a Christian term, but it's um, the um, something son. The prodigal son returning to, returning home essentially, um, but yeah, uh, I I don't know if I have anything else to say about the movie. Like, oh my God, Schindler's List is good, you know, says every critic ever. Uh, like, and once again, the, the slight blemishes of like overacting and you know over emotionality that feels like you're being like pulled along. Like here, you're supposed to feel this way. Come on, that 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 those parts don't undercut the overall impact of the movie which is yeah even now i was on the verge of tears and that that ending itself is still heart you know heartbreaking to watch where it's the whole as the people as the as schindler's jews were leaving uh his hometown in czechoslovakia uh when the russians say you've been liberated but you can't come here and you can't go and i don't advise going west so it's like where the hell are they supposed to go and so it was the you know, and so the, here are these thousand so a, a thousand I think plus eleven hundred I think was what the final tally. Uh, Jews le- walking over the hill over this hillside, and then it uh, white and then it uh, transitions to those surviving Jews walking over the hill in Israel, where uh, Oscar Schindler was final was laid to rest as um as, as sort of a tribute by the state of Israel to him for doing so much to help. Uh, you know the Jewish people in world and during you know during the Holocaust, and then every and then there are so many people who who you know plus the, I mean cut in half because of the actors, but there are so many people whose lives were affected by this man that they that they're that laying little like palm sized rocks on his on his standard like two and a half three foot maybe four foot long. Uh, tombstone nearly covered up the whole thing. That's how many people's lives were affected by Oscar Schindler. And it's a very touching tribute. So, yeah, Schindler's List, still amazing after 25 years. And you would really hope that we would have learned something by now. But you have to pay attention to history in order to learn from it. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. Like I mentioned, there was nothing else in theaters this li- like there were plenty of limited releases and I'll, you know, if you, the uh, end trailer talk you'll you're going to hear uh this ep- at the end of this episode was actually from last week cuz I confused Last week, with, I've confused this coming week with last week because it only took until recently that Schindler's List was listed as a wide release. The other stuff that was that was 
slated to come out this weekend. Um, they mentioned Dumplin', which is from uh, which is a Netflix movie. Vox Lux. I saw some people talking about Mary Queen of Scots was, was came out in limited release this weekend. Um, ben is back was another Oscar uh, awards bait movie that got limited release, and there was a do- documentary on Roger Ailes. Or is it a documentary or is it a? Yeah, I think it's a documentary. Documentary um, by, uh, based on Roger about the, about Roger Ailes. That uh, came out in limited release. So the only new release to come out this weekend wide was Schindler's List, which was a re- which is which is a re-release of the movie from 1993. So the only new release this weekend was from 1993. In lieu of that, uh, and that's going to lead into my discussion uh, this weekend, uh, this episode. <laughs> Uh, where I finally got my wish, Hollywood stopped releasing a mo- new movie for a weekend, uh, at least near me, and I'm going to talk about the ramifications of that and if it's really what I wanted And it, now that I finally got it. Uh, but since I, since I couldn't go to the theaters this weekend, I stayed home and watched Netflix, and one of the first and the first thing I watched was the was the long delayed Andy Serkis adaptation of the Jungle Book. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Now, if you, for those of you uh, who pay attention to like new releases and coming coming attractions and sort of stuff, where you're like, "Oh, I saw the poster for this on like ComingSoon.net or uh, Dark Horizons or something," or like Dorkly or uh, someone shared this poster and it was like, "Oh, there's the trailers making the rounds." I remember that seeing that trending on YouTube or something. Um, this was slated for 2017 after um, Disney's live-action remake of The Jungle Book by John Favreau. And unfortunately, Warner Brothers didn't... Because re- here's the thing. This movie's rated PG-13. And Warner Brothers got cold feet and didn't think it was going to make any money in theaters. And they're kind of right, but they still dumped... And so instead, they dumped the movie on the Netflix, which I feel like is a shame because... There were worse movies that came out in theaters. Like, Sony thought The Possession of Hannah Grace was worthy of theatrical release. Peter Jackson is about to release a steampunk um, adaptation of a young adult novel. And they they keep trying to make that a thing. And yet Warner Brothers couldn't release Andy Serkis' Jungle Book movie. Because it wouldn't make enough money, Peter Jackson is basically saying, "Please don't make, the, please don't make this a flop. Please don't make this bomb. We spent so much time and money on it. We really like this movie. Please don't make it bomb." <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyway, Andy Serkis. Um, well, here's the problem: you cannot, you can't not compare this to Favreau's live-action remake. They're too close together in release. And they're and the and the concept is too close together. Just the the conceit is too close together. You know, motion captured and you know realistic animals interacting with Mowgli, a live action Mowgli, and it's it's impossible not to correlate to to compare the two. So I'll say this much: As, on the positive side for this movie, it's better shot than Favreau's is really limp. Looking, and that's the problem for his Lion King too. They look; it looks, it doesn't look phenomenal. It looks kind of 
standard. It doesn't look compelling. Whereas Circus definitely put thought into cinematography and lighting and making something, making the making the you know the pictures pop out at you. And the actor playing Mowgli in here, he's the kid from Bad Words with um with uh Jason Bateman. Uh, he's he's a bit older, but he's still young enough to pass for Mowgli. I think he's a better actor than the kid they got for Favreau's Jungle Book. Like the kid in Favreau's Jungle Book was like, "I'm a little kid. I have no idea how acting works." La di na 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 da 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 da. Yo, he has that little kid acting, and here the actor knows how to act, so he's able to emote and do things. What they give him isn't very much. If he was given the Favreau script to act, I think he would have done a lot better. Um, so yeah, he, the problems here deal more with uh, the voice cast and the CGI. Like, the CGI here is ugly, and the parts that aren't ugly are hard to watch. Like, literally hard to watch because they hide so much in darkness. Like, even the darkness used... Like, that's the problem. Favreau's Disney... Favreau's Disney um, remake knew how to utilize lighting and darkness so that you could still see what was going on. Here, there are entire scenes that look like they're shot in black. Like, it's like, oh, there's shapes moving in the darkness. It's realism. Sometimes it's okay not to be realistic, guys, you know? I'm working on something with my nephew, and we're playing Red Dead Redemption, and sometimes, and there are points where it's like, why is this realistic, but these other parts aren't? Why are you wasting our time trying to be realistic when that's not what we want out of this thing? You know, and trying to be realistic, like it's all in the dark. See, you guys, no, that's not what I wanted at all. Like, why would you do? Like, I need to see the things that are going on. Like, I, like, like, I can put fun at really bad blue for blue shading on day for night shoots, but it's it it's it's CGI. These are CGI backgrounds with CGI characters. You can put some more lights in there. Yeah, you could artificially, you know, make it brighter so that we don't have to do it ourselves on the TV, guys. Um, yeah, and then, of course, uh, the voice cast. It's, Disney's was just better, man. Like, here we've got, like, Christian Bale as Bagheera, who starts off like, <gasps> I'm out of breath. I'm Bagheera. <sighs> but... Where is Gordon? You know, like, he almost starts off as uh, doing his Batman thing, but then he finally settles down. His first lines are set out of breath! How does that work? Oof. Um, but he's not very, like, compared to Ben Kingsley as Bagheera, Ben Kingsley had, like, a regality to him. He's had, like, a... He almost he almost was very cat-like in his delivery. But this Christian Bale, like, he doesn't add anything to Bagheera. Uh, meanwhile, Baloo is unlike any version of Baloo I've ever seen. I always assumed Baloo being, you know, they, bears are kind of deemed as um, sort of lumbering, sort of friendly giants in literature and, and in, like, anthropomorph. When you anthropomorphize a bear, it usually is to make them, like, big, lumbering, like, if you're, at least if you're going to make them into uh, likable characters. Otherwise, you would make them big, hulking monsters. Here, we're supposed to like Baloo, but Baloo's voice comes from Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and he's a drill sergeant. 
Why is Baloo a drill sergeant? I, I do not understand why Baloo is... And it's Andy Serkis playing Baloo. And it's like, God blimey, Mowgli, you got to pay attention. Like, he's got the lip thing hanging down. So it's like, God blimey, Mowgli, I sound like I'm I'm in a Guy Ritchie movie, I is. You know, you've got to pay attention. And then, like, there's a scene where Bagheera and Baloo have an all-out fight. Like, Blue and Bagheera, like, argue and will sometimes, like, get in each other's face in, other, in every iteration of the Jungle Book. So for here to just be like, nah, man, I'm gonna, like, try and kill you because we're fighting now. It felt like trying to amp up a, a dis, an argument into fisticuffs for no reason. You know, it's like, you know, like, they could have this argument, like, like, like that's the thing. They, this never happens again. This never happens again. It's just one point where it's like, they're arguing... But because they don't want the argument to just be two animals in each other's face, it's like, well, Bagheera, like, attacks him and uses his claws and bites him and Baloo throws him around and blah, 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 blah. It's like kaiju fighting. And it's like, why is this here? Who cares? What does this add to anything? It's like, it's like they needed an action scene, but all they had left was an argument, so they turned the argument into a fight. I don't get it. Ah, oh, it, it's so weird. I don't, I don't, plus Baloo looks like he was maced several times and he, he, he looks like, uh, he was, he looks almost like Rocky Balboa in the face. He was punched so many times. <laughs> yeah. I, he almost looks like Quasimodo. He would be quasi. It looks like, what would you make, you know, if Quasimodo was a bear in the face, like, but I'm beautiful on the inside, aren't I, Esmeralda? Ugh, come on. Um, then, on top of that, you've got... I said Tilda Swinton in my Munch Along on Twitter. And it turns out... It was... Like, I compared it to Lord of the Rings and the whole Galadriel opening of, like... I am the deep, mystical voice of the forest. And it's Ka? Why is it Ka? Wouldn't the elephants be, like, the ones who know everything? Elephants are already deemed to be one of the smartest animals in the in the king, in, you know in the animal kingdom outside of humans. So wouldn't the elephant and plus elephants are revered in Indian culture? I mean, via Ganesh, like we know Ganesh, we know Ganesh is a god within the Indian pantheon. Why wouldn't you make the oracle of the forest who knows everything an elephant? That's the other thing too. Why is Ka a chick now? Like I know. Favreau did it because he wanted to, th to bring in Scarlett Johansson. It's like, I like using Scarlett Johansson, but I have no idea where to put her in this movie. She's Ka now. And I feel like after that, it's like, okay, Ka's a chick now, everybody. But look, I get the I get Richard Kipling made it, a, made it a sausage fest, apparently, because that's what every writer did pre-feminism. Pre but why Ka? Why is Ka the chick now? It's because Ka's a, like, that's the problem. I know Ka to be like, since he's a snake, the voice is like slow and hypnotizing and it brings you in. And when it, I guess when it was like Sterling Holloway, it, it didn't, it didn't bother me. But now the Ka's a chick, and especially since it's Carlos Johansson and Kate Blanchett, are they trying to make me want to, want to bone Ka? Like, am I supposed to want to F that? Because Ka's a snake. Like I'm no, at least it's not so bad as to give like a, a a pushed out chest to make it look like breasts, like they do with anthropomorphic animals, when you want to f them. But like, 
why is like the slow, sultry voiced character now a chick, and why why is it now that it has to be like 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 someone try like someone trying to seduce you into into having sex with them, like like why is that a thing now? Like even when like when it was the male voice, that wasn't a thing now. But because now females are playing Ka, now it's like slow and sultry and trusting me. And it's like Scar- that's why Scarlett Johansson is my least favorite part of the Favreau remake because there's no reason for Ka there. Ka serves no purpose in the story other than to remember, hey, hey, remember Ka? Ka's in this movie. You guys remember how Ka was a thing in the other movie? And here Ka serves more of a purpose, but Ka's Galadriel. Literally, Ka is Galadriel now. Voiced by Galadriel, saying everything like Galadriel. Ka's Galadriel now. What is this movie? Baloo's a drill sergeant. Ka's Galadriel. Sheer Khan walks with a limp. Like, let's like, like that's the thing. I think Disney did it right when they tried when they the disfigurement they gave to Shere Khan was like a was like a was like a scar across his eye. They made him look like he was battle damaged, but he was still a, t- a functioning tiger. Here, Benedict Cumberbatch looks like he's Richard the Third limping around, and yet we're supposed to take him seriously as a villain. Like, yeah, 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 gonna get you, man cub. Yeah, yeah, hold on. Yeah, let me. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, yeah. D- Look, you, I, I I refuse to take your pity, man, cub. I'm I'm almost there. Like, yeah. hold on, yeah. hold on, yeah. and it's inconsistent too. So it's like some points where he's like, when he's trying to be menacing, he's dragging the foot along like it's a like it's like it's the claw. Yeah, only the claw knows. Who beware the claw. Yeah. 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 I'm swiping at the microphone as though you can see me. Um. <laughs> Uh, but no, and then other times he's like regular, regular tiger. So which is it? Like, are we supposed to be, uh, how are we supposed to be afraid of Shere Khan when he's like freaking Richard III limping around with a, with a bum paw? Like half of his killing mechanism, he's lost half of his killing mechanisms. Well, a third technically. He's, he's still got the mouth and he's still got the, the, the left hand. But the right hand is like, yeah, 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 yeah hold on, almost there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't take that seriously, even if it's voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, you know. And also, Benedict Cumberbatch can't compare to Idris Elba. Idris Elba's a far superior. Like Kate Blanchett's a better Ka, but Ka was given a really stupid thing to do that doesn't make any sense or play into the plot at all. And everybody else is usually better in the voice cast. Like, um, like uh, Ben Kingsley's a better Bagheera. Um. Idris Elba's a better Shere Khan. Uh, Bill Murray's a more, un, a, at least better, at least more likable and understandable. Uh, uh, Baloo. And then, like, the wolves, the Aquila and uh, uh, the other wolves. Are, like, the, the wolves here look more like actual Indian wolves would look. Whereas the other movie used gray wolves as the base. So, points to accuracy over here for, the, for Mowgli. But it's just... Also, this movie turns into Tarzan. I don't know if Richard Kipling wrote this to be more like Tarzan, but this movie essentially turns into Tarzan by the end, especially with, like, the guy with the pith helmet hunting the animals. I thought the Jungle Book took place 
pre-colonialization. I thought Richard Kipling was writing the Jungle Book as sort of like to show to English readers what the wilds of India were like before we modernized them and gave them culture. You know, one of those sorts of really, you know, crappy things that white people did back in the 1800s. Okay, I, I dug some digging so I could speak from more authority, you know, from places with more authority. Um, it looks like, uh, based on what people are saying, that and from some of the uh, stories later on, and because that's the thing, uh, the Jungle Book um, and the Second Jungle Book, the book, the collection were collections of short stories, a la Aesop's Fables. Or um, I remember a specific one I had uh, that was also. In that same vein, just uh, just so stories. I remember having that as a kid. I think one of my uncles gave it to me. Um, and it's a collection of Richard Kipling short stories, where like the cat who walked alone, and um, uh, there was a bunch in there, like how the leopard got its spots, and you know, th- little little fate, little instructional fables. But it seems like um, the Jungle Book uh, was based on some of the some of the storytelling aspects is set. Oh, in is set contemporaneous, set contemporaneously, like just before, um, like around the time that uh, Richard Kipling was growing up. So, like the eighteen sixties or something, you know, colonial India, and so that 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 at least you know eases my mind on the inclusion of the random white dude in this movie because apparently that is based on a character within the Jungle Book by Richard Kipling. I guess that's my problem is that we've already got a story about white people coming into the jungle with magical talking animals and whatnot. It's Tarzan. And we're kind of over Tarzan at this point, too, because, look, we just don't need white guys in the jungle, okay? Like, that story, that that era of storytelling the from the, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, that was cool at the time. We can move on. We can move beyond that now. Like, we're, we're cool with that. Why, why not make this about, like, that's the nice thing about um, Favreau's version and the, a nice thing that Disney kind of left out is that it's not dealing with colonial India specifically because that raises so many more questions. But by and so by focusing more on like the local villagers and the interaction between the Indian the Indian people and uh, the animals that makes it that makes it more more condensed. But by trying to include the fact that oh by the way colonialism is totally happening that was kind of what ruined. Uh, Tarzan, the the last Tarzan movie, which featured um, what's his name? Uh, shoot, I completely forgot that guy. Um, but as much as I liked that movie, uh, The Legend of Tarzan, uh, as much um, which featured I think Alexander Skarsgård, one of the Skarsgård brothers, um, I think. It was some Swedish uh title guy. Um, leg- and it featured uh, Sam Jackson of all people, and um. Lots of really bad retellings of stories that feature legend. Legend of the King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, The Legend of Tarzan, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Uh, Oh god, that was David Yates, fresh off of Harry Potter, trying to do another... Yeah, Alexander Skarsgård. I don't think he's the... Yeah, I think he's the guy in It now? No, um... No, he. That, I think that's Bill Skarsgård is the guy in it. Alexander is more of the muscly one. He's from True Blood, and uh, Zoolander too, apparently. Uh, at any rate, yeah. Um, that part of the problem with that movie was it was a white guy coming in to to save Africa, and it's like, 
we're good. We're good on these stories. Um, we, we don't need any more of them. Like, like we've kind of progressed past the need for... Like, the reason these stories were written was to tell people in... in in, in urbanized areas in the in the in the quote unquote Western world, like how the savage lands must be tamed by us, the true conquerors, and it was like those stories don't need to be retold anymore. Like we're good, like we're done with those. And I think the problem with this, with including stuff of like that in this movie is that now it raises all those questions up. Like why are we focusing on this character? This this brings up so many more questions that are never addressed by the movie. And yeah, maybe we're kind of over. Maybe we can be kind of done with Kipling because dude was kind of a, a kind of a terrible person. The dude wrote a poem called "White Man's Burden," and it was about how it, the white man's burden to care for the savages, essentially. And it's like, why are we still working with this dude's writing? Like, I, I mean, at some, I, I mean, at some point, you just have to omit the really terrible stuff if you want to get a decent story out of it. You know, which is what Favreau essentially did. And if you, you know, and so why are we including that in here? It's not, it's not, especially since it's not essential to the story. Like the whole bit with the hunter is just like, oh, hunters are dicks. Yeah. Anybody who likes animals will tell you that, especially if it's like sports hunting. Like this isn't like they mentioned the need for hunters to look into the eyes of their prey as they're killing it to keep, put them at peace. And the hunter and the human hunter doesn't do that because he hunts for sport. And yeah, like, did we need this? Like, what does this add to the story? Especially since he only pops up in the third act and doesn't do anything. And then there's like a whole thing where it's like, they set up one shot of an elephant with missing half a tusk. And then it's like when Mowgli learns what happened to the tusk, he's like, now I shall help you get your revenge. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, what, what is this? What is going on now? What's happening? When did this come up? So I think... Warner Brothers had a point. As much as Circus was proud of this movie, the CGI wasn't that great. The story's a hot mess. There are weird changes that pe- that are not really helping. Like, the best part about this movie is that it included bits with the Indian village. So you got to see, essentially, an outsider's point of view of, like, random Indian stuff. But it didn't do anything, ultimately. It didn't lead to anything, sadly. Like, Mowgli just returns to the jungle without any problem. And, yeah, I mean, there's, like, it's... It doesn't. It's not well acted. It's not like the and it's just ultimately a lesser product than the Disney remake. Like as much as there are some good stuff going up for it, I can see why Warner. I can honestly see why Warner Brothers would want to dump this on Netflix. Like what is what what? It, it's not a very good movie. I mean, I, as much like you can't just dump every movie you think is going to lose money in, on Netflix and call it a day. That's unfair to the filmmaker. But because I mean, there are plenty of movies that are going to lose money that you can't predict, and it's like, who cares? And, and you can't, but you can't be like, well, better hedge your bets. Put this on Hulu. Put this on Amazon. Who cares? And it's like, come on, man. That, that's, you're not even giving it a chance at that point. At least give it like a two week run or something. So yeah, Mowgli: Legend of the Jungle is not a good movie, but I feel like there's there was a there's there's some goodness in there, and I feel. Very saddened for Circus that he that the studio did him like that, even if I can understand where the studio was coming from and kind of agree with them. Next up, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs from the Coen Brothers. And it's been a while since we have had a solid anthology movie. So here we have a, uh, essentially a 
a six story anthology movie where there where we open on a on a actually really well printed like old st- old school style um wooden not wooden but like it has that wood with felt or the cardboard with felt for the cover and then it opens with like plate illustrated plates like really well illustrated plates to lead into the next story and they have like they have like um sur- not saran wrap uh what's that thing uh, wax paper uh, to keep the images uh, pristine, it's really well. It's really the interstitial bits where they're going from story to story is is like real. I would own that book. So if they ever do like a tie-in for this for this movie, where it's like, hey, for a limited time, you can buy the book. You can buy a printing of the book that we made to do the interstitial bits, and I feel like that would be quick to sell out. So yeah, that's that's a, that's a, it's a solid book. Ten out of ten uh, for the stories. I've got my thoughts. I'll, I'll truncate them a little bit. Um, I've, I've written only one sentence sort of responses to each of the stories. So the first one is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which stars Tim Blake Nelson as a singing cowboy a la Roger Miller. Um, it's fun. Cle- it's a fun, clever send-up of the singing cowboy thing. And, it's, uh, and, it, and I call it like the bard who rolls all 20s and then he gets his first one. Essentially, that's, that's immediately what I thought of watching this, and it's good. I, I I think it's my favorite of the of everything, and it, so it leads off on a on a strong one. It follows it up with the one featuring uh, J- James Franco that has the uh, meme that's been going around the gif uh, the gif that's been uh, circulating of him going like first time while he's got the noose around his neck. Um, that one's near Algodonis. Uh, that one also, which is which is weird that that's the me that's the image that's been going around, and not freaking Stephen Root running in with pots going like pan shot, pan shot, like that's that should be meme worthy. It's like suck, like if you want to interrupt the conversation, you just be like pan shot, pan shot, or if somebody tries an insult and it doesn't land, pan shot, pan shot. Where's that meme? Come on, come on, internet, get on it. Um, that one I describe as botched bank robbery leads to elongated hanging, which is essentially what the, that's the premise of that story. That one comes. That one's followed up with uh, Meal Ticket, which stars Liam Neeson and I forget the guy's name, but I know him. But I when I looked him up, he was the um, the grandson of the second Doctor actor uh, Patrick Troughton. Uh, Ballad. Of Buster Scruggs. There we go. Uh, okay, 2018. I almost thought uh, they were saying this is the best film of 2016. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, this came out in 2016? Nah, it's 2018. Um, yeah, uh, that one stars Harry Melling. Uh, that's as a, as a quadriplegic uh, like actor. Who can who is who recites like lines from Shakespeare and retells the story of Cain and Abel from the Bible and does the Gettysburg Address? But every but as they as Liam Neeson travels with him, they get few, less and less money, and it becomes and it gets and so I call it the trials and tribulations of a struggling agent, struggling entertainment agent. Um, that one is followed by All Gold Canyon, which stars Tom Waits. As a prospector who follows a pro- follows uh, a hunch to try and find uh, the mo- essentially a mother load of gold, uh, and so Tom Waits strikes it rich. Bleh. Tom Waits strikes it rich, as I like to call it. Uh, I like that one. That was a, that was another one of my favorites. Uh, the, the fifth story is the one I like the least. 
the gal who got rattled, and that's people are assholes to a dog for no reason, and then racist depictions of indigenous people, which came right the hell out of nowhere. It's, I'll get into that one, but uh, the last story was The Mortal Remains, which is small talk in an Uber. That's, yeah, that's pretty much what that one was all about. I thought it was going somewhere, and then it ended up going nowhere. Uh, so yeah, breaking them down a little bit more, uh, ranking them, my favorites were Ballad of Buster Scruggs, followed by uh, uh, All Gold Canyon. Those were two. Those two were my favorites, and then I believe next was uh, Near Algodones, then Meal Ticket, followed by The Mortal Remains, and then finally The Gal Who Got Rattled. Uh, I know not every story can be a winner, but, like, at, you'd think with the Coens that there wouldn't be a stinker like the gal who got rattled. Um, and that's the thing. Like, Meal Ticket and Nero Godones, I don't particularly think of too much just because they're not, they're a little bit light. You know, they're simple and they're short. Like, they work for short stories, but they're not, like... Like, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs was visceral, entertaining. It was, like... It was like it was re- like it had gr- really good songs and singing, and it was like really fun and crazy and wild. It felt almost Tarantino, like the kind of stuff that Tarantino would make. And the Coens were like really hit it out of the park with their first one. And then I love Old Gold Canyon just because Tom Waits is a phenomenal actor. You know, you don't think of him as an actor, but he is a really good. He's able to carry this segment pretty much by himself. And then the twist at the end was like, whoa. I was like, I thought that was go. I thought I, th- I thought I knew where it was going, and then nope, just went. It went. Oh yeah, I see. We, th- I, I, I know you're on to us. So you know what? Nah, we're doing this now. So I really like uh, all Gold Canyon, and then Nero Godones and Meal Ticket were solid, but the Mortal Remains. It was like that's the thing. Mortal Remains was was kind of. Uh, like I thought, it, like I, the way it was going, I thought it was totally going to be like a weird sort of supernatural, paranormal story of like, oh, what's really going on on this coach ride into the dark night? And it's like, no, 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 it's just five people in an Uber, and they're all kind of talking. They're just making small talk. So you've got a really super re- religious sort of. Um, uppity uppity uh uh highfalutin woman you've got a trapper who talks about having an affair uh having a relationship with an indigenous woman and uh you have a a frenchman who's kind of a dick to everybody and then you've got the and then it's revealed that you've got these two hitmen uh and then but then it doesn't do anything like it it really doesn't go anywhere like the two hitmen sing and are kind of nice like you'd think there'd be more to the story if it was if this was a scene where we were following those two guys that might be, that might that might lead to something. Here it's just like, oh, nothing happened. Like literally nothing happened. So why was this here? Like why is this a story? Like it feels like it feels like they were halfway through the actual story and then they realized oh crap we don't have much time uh here put in all of the uh, put cut out cut out a bunch of the other stuff and then we'll just make this half a story we have to make more time for the worst story of them all the gal who got rattled and if you like the story fine i hated the gal who got rattled number one i don't like it's zoe kazan who is a good actress in her own right as a woman who has to determine who she's going to get married 
and like she sent out what she sent off on a wagon train to marry somebody but halfway through things go wrong and she has to figure out and she has to figure out oh gee who am i going to marry now because that's all women can do apparently and it's like nothing like zoe kazan is a solid actress why well like, why couldn't you just do something do like the romance that they do in this is like half-assed it's almost no-assed it's like they've got um who plays billy knapp uh billy knapp is the billy heck well shoot why then in the character billy heck that's a great name uh but bill heck is known for the leftovers the good wife the alienist he's a tv actor and he's a solid actor too it's just um it really is just it's like a lazy it, it's like the coens were like well shoot should we write a romance story <sighs> fine it's like it's like it's like a bro it's like a guy's writing a story and then his little sister it's like a teenager is writing a story it's like oh we're talking about cowboys and gunfights and rank robberies and then his little sister comes in can you write a love story please can you write a love story if you don't write a love story i'm gonna tell mom and it's like fine i'll write you a love story here's a here's a love story thank you and it's it doesn't go anywhere and then all of a sudden it ends with like a comanche raid and it, it just then it's just it's like why was any of this here what does it have to do with the gal who got rattled? I thought the point of, like, the title makes it sound like there's something going to happen. Like, oh, Zoe Kazan's going to lose it and, like, going to snap and go crazy or something. It's like, no, nothing happens. Literally nothing happens. A woman gets on a wagon train to marry some guy she doesn't know. Bad thing, something, you know, she hits a, a stumbling block along the way. People are assholes to a dog for existing. And then... And then Zoe Kazan, and then like Zoe Kazan, just like decides to marry some, some one of the guys ta- dr- leading the wagon train, and then the Comanche attack. It's like, what does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with anything? What 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 is the point of this? Like the Comanche showing up in near Algodones, that was weird and out of nowhere too. But I get why was there, the point uh, point in that story where the Comanche was like. Oh, here are these things that perpetually elongate his death sentence. So it's like, oh, he tries to rob a bank. He gets caught. He's about to be lynched. And then the Comanche attack. So he gets picked up by a, by a cattle rancher. Oh, it turns out he's a, rus- he's a rustler. So he's about to be hanged again. What's going to happen? You know, it's that sort of thing. Here, it's like, all of a sudden, the Comanche come up because, oh, shoot, we ha- uh, shoot, this love story's boring. Comanche's attack! And it's like, what, what was the point? So yeah, it's that it really is for the Cohen brothers. It really feels like some of their laziest writing. It's like we had, they had a great idea. Oh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is going to be an anthology movie, and we've got a singing cowboy and a bank robbery gone wrong and a prospector, and then it's like uh uh, and then um uh a love story, but it doesn't. It's it's it, it then you know Comanche's attack. And then, oh, um, people are in an Uber, and then nothing happens. Like, that's the thing. It was interesting up until that point. The last two stories really lowered the bar for me. So, like, the first story, amazing. My favorite of the whole bunch. Second story, really solid, really, really great. Really get why that one was the kind of one that stood out to people. It was, like, randomly mimetic 
Um, Neil Ticket was a sad, like, little short story. It were great. And then All Gold Canyon, I just love Tom Waits and his performance. So even though not a lot happens, at least Tom Waits makes it interesting. Then the last two stories don't do anything. Like, even though you've got, like, Tyne Daly as the, um, as the righteous old woman, Brendan Gleeson is one of the hitmen who I, I thought I thought I recognized. And then you've got Zoe Kazan, as I mentioned, as um, the, the lead of the guy who got rattled. You've got Tom Waits, as I mentioned, Liam Neeson, Harry Malling, you know, you know under the so Tim Blake Nelson, um, Clancy Brown's in here, Stephen Root, uh, James Franco. So you've got some A-list stars as well as some under, uh, like, like right, on, right on the cusp of getting recognized. And, you know, so you've got... Um, David Krumholtz, uh, who I know the name, but not familiar with him. Um, Bill Heck, like I mentioned, is a TV actor. Uh, Jefferson Mays is in um, The Gala Got Rattled. Granger Hines. Sal- Saul Rubinick, um, for those who might remember him, I think he's a character actor. John Joe O'Neill. John Joe? John Joe. J-O-N-J-O. Uh, John Joe O'Neill, I guess. Uh, he, I think he's the other... Um, yeah, he's the other uh, hitman in um, in the in the last story. Uh, so you've got you've got these recognizable names going into this movie, and it's a Coen Brothers, you know, production. So it's not terrible. It, it's and it's very well shot. It's very cinematic. I could see this running in theaters, but and that's the other thing too like when there are shootouts the blood effects and the like there's a bit where Tim Blake Nelson shoots off one guy's fingers and it's like those are some really solid like it's really solid practical effects work going on and it's great and then even some of the CGI mixing stuff works great it's so well put together and well shot and it's like the problem is not all the stories work so most of the stories are good but the ones that don't are kind of the reason I wouldn't want to rewatch this. Like, I, if I could rewatch just the clips of the individual stories, I could go back to Ballad of Buster Scruggs and All Gold Canyon and Near Algodones again. But I, then I could skip. Um, like, that's the thing. Personally, I would stop after All Good All Gold Canyon because after that point, there's no re- reason to can keep going because I it feels like they didn't bother after that point. So, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I would say of the new releases, technically, that the newer things that I've been watching, uh, I mean, Chiller's List is technically my pick of the week because it's the best movie that came out and I saw this week. But as far as newer stuff, this would be the one I would say go and watch. Um, and then Mowgli, Mowgli is, a, is kind of my de facto unpopped kernel. It's the one I would never want to watch again. And then we're going to end off on a kind of weirdly controversial one. I watched, I binged uh, all 13 episodes of season one of She-Ra, Princesses of Power. Uh, well, technically, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which is yet another DreamWorks remake. Uh, after they did Voltron, they managed to get the rights to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe franchise. And I think they're doing a He-Man live-action movie. But for She-Ra, they decided to do a remake of the old filmation She-Ra, mo- She-Ra show and do it in the same style as the people who vault, who made Voltron. I think it's the same company too, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see, because um, it looks the animation style looks very much in line. Because these are the same people who worked on um, Avatar and uh, uh, Legend of Korra. Let me see. Da, da, da. 
And also, it's brought to us by Noelle Stevenson, who is best known for Lumberjanes and Nimona. So she's a very, very well, you know, acclaimed comics creator. And for her to be, for her to have pitched this, it makes total sense. It feels like this. This feels like a perfect sort of. It's almost the same kind of thing that Lauren Faust did with My Little Pony. I definitely compare it to that. Uh, that sort of. Uh, that sort of um, storytelling. And I'll get into that in a bit. Um, da, 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 da. Trying to find Voltron is Studio Murr. And She-Ra is... She-Ra is... Mattel Creations... But doesn't and then the studio listed was did not have a let me see studio murder was the boondocks legend of Korra and I believe at Lego elves secret of, secrets of Elvendale uh, there and they also worked on Avatar the Last Airbender but did they not apparently they did not work on uh, Shira that's weird so then who all right let's go back. Studio is NE4U. So let's take a look at them. Sorry, I didn't get a lot of time to do the research. NE4U is another South Korean animation studio. Uh, They're known for Teen Titans Go to the Movies, the teaser tag, uh, Marvel's Spider-Man, Harvey Street Kids, DC Superhero Girls. Okay, so Dawn of the Croods and Trolls the Beat Goes On. So that's where they're known for uh, their connection to DreamWorks. Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters. And then She-Ra Princesses of Power. So, it's an, so that explains the style. It's, it's another South Korean. It's not the same South Korean studio that did Avatar. But it's another South Korean studio that does a lot of the same, um, same, same style. So it's very much somewhat anime inspired, essentially. And um, yeah, the story is pretty much like... It's, it's it's the same sort of storytelling idea that uh, Lauren Faust did with My Little Pony when she rebooted that. The idea here is She-Ra, they actually did something interesting where they she, where she, uh, a Princess Adora was taken in by, instead of being sent there by Prince Adam and, you know, uh, the rebellion on Grayskull. Uh, I think that's what happened in the filmation version, but here it's, she was born on the side of Hordak, which is the main villain of the original series. And everyone got a slight redesign. Uh, less, well, that's the thing. All the filmation, every filmation character was a redraw of each other. They were the same character models because they had to be because they were selling a toy line. So here, all the character models are much more diverse. You've got skinny characters, bigger boned characters, uh, kind of, you know, curvier characters and then you've got skinnier characters or weirder characters and yeah it's it's not and not everybody looks like a barbie doll or a ken doll that's supposed to because that's all the mattel did with he-man it's just like aside from like you know all the males have to be the same model and all the females have to be the same model because it's cheaper on production here it's like no here we have actual character design and all the characters look different and interesting and of course we've got some actual practice i think the problem I think the weird problem people had was like, how come I can't see She-Ra's boobs? I can't see her tits anymore. And it's like, she was always meant to be 14. Why is it? And so, so A, 
she's 14, even in the original version, she was essentially meant to be 14. And B, why would you want to sexualize a teenager, you weirdos? In fact, I like the redesign. Uh, a couple of animators point out, uh, like animators and uh, graphic designers that I follow pointed out that there's a couple of things that more deals with, like, you know, you can, the omission of, like, outlines. Like, there's, a, it, you know, sometimes it's okay to have little, you know, ink outlines. Not everything has to remove the outlines anymore. And that's more of a design choice that's come up recently, but that's, you know, an, you know animation and art, art nerd stuff. Um, but yeah, as for her actual design, the skirt with like the shorts uh, and, and like the full like chest piece where it's like one tour, one collective piece that goes up to her neck. It's like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's a much more practical idea. It's much more practical design choice. She's not into heels anymore. She's in like boots. So yeah, that makes sense. That's that's a more practical design choice. Oh my God. It's like someone who wears actual women's clothing design this or something. Um yeah, so yeah, it's more age-appropriate, it's more practical, and the other designs work great, too. Uh, I do think it's kind of funny that the character of Bo has an like, ongoing thing. Like, there's a bit where he where they go to prom, because apparently they wanted apparently somebody wanted to do a prom episode. Whatever. Um, but he wears a cummerbund, and he's like, I don't like this. I don't like having my midriff not showing. So he takes off the cummerbund so he can show his midriff. You know, it's, it's weird little quirks like that I think are funny. And then, you know, but hey, these characters have real characterization as opposed to where the film... Like, Filmation was not a fantastic studio. Like, maybe you got something out of it growing up, watching it, but after... Being somebody who grew up in the 90s where the the creators had more control over what their cartoons looked like, I feel like I prefer this sort of storytelling where it's like, oh, here we we need... You know, Glimmer's actions kind of showcase what kind of character she is, where she's like nerdy and awkward and, you know, jealous and and not have doesn't have a lot of friends. So when she thinks she's losing a friend, she thinks she's going to lose that friend forever. And she's scared of her mom. And then they have to deal with that issue. And it's like, oh, my God. Hey, somebody who knows how to write stories and characters. It's amazing. And then, like, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, It starts off where Adora was raised by Hordak and specifically, um... Shadow Weaver, who are all characters brought in from the Filmation show. And Shadow Weaver is sort of like the weird, twisted mother figure where she's manipulative and praises Adora over everyone else, especially since she's, you know, like Katra, who was the main antagonist to She-Ra in the cartoon. Now they have like a weird um, sister relationship early on and then at once adora defects from the horde to 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 serve the, to fight for the rebellion catra feels betrayed and so the main arc of the season is catra dealing with her her feelings about adora abandoning her and thought that she had you know adora kind of gave up on her real dreams in order to fight for the rebellion who she sees as weak and yeah, it's a ma- it's a great character development for Catra, and it makes her a really interesting character. Also, she looks like an actual cat this time, and not a woman who talks like a cat. You know, it's because it, hey, we have character design. That's the other thing too. Scorpia shows up; she's a character brought over from uh, the filmation. But when I looked up the filmation version of these characters, they all look the same. You know, the 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 female characters all look the same, essentially. The good characters had more, like, a muscle to them, while the evil characters were skinnier. And, like, Scorpia looked exactly like Catra, looked exactly like the other evil ladies. And, and, and you know, and basically, all, all, like, Adora and Glimmer were the same character, just with different hair colors. And then they had, and I think they had the same voice actors, too, which is just... Wow, guys, why are you... I, I get you grew up with this as a kid, but sometimes you can just... 
uh, you could just like, you know, not, you know, you can kind of accept the fact that maybe your show you grew up with wasn't very good. I mean, I know I had to do that with a lot of stuff I grew up with in the 90s. I watched the Land Before Time sequels. I acknowledge they're not very good now. I, if someone says they suck and if they did a reboot and it looked better, I was like, oh my god, it looks, it looks way better. I'm not beholden to this crappy thing I grew up with as a kid. If somebody could do it better, great. Um, at any rate, uh, yeah, the Scorpia here is a bit is a musk, more muscularly built woman. Uh, I think she's they're all teenagers. But yeah, she's like, she's more muscularly built. She, she's like a she's like almost like a weightlifter essentially, and she's and and uh, she, you know she has and she looks like the parts of her that are scorpion like look look better. Whereas the ones in like the original show look like nye, 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 little pincers because it's like we can't make it look too uh, obtuse or anything. They have to be tiny so they can look like the actual hands. And then we replace the hand parts with you know like once again it feels like toy designers made them and not like actual character designers so yeah it felt like a corporate you know it, it, so when so yeah i like the designs here they're very well thought out and i like the back i like the new backstories now where it's like we get scorpia is kind of kind of the dumb friend but at the same time like she acknowledges the fact that she never got along with the other people so she's like yeah screw it like these horde people come in they they seem nice so who cares and then it's like and trapped uh i didn't know was a villain from the original series, so her arc makes a lot of sense the way they introduce her as a villain, villains essentially, and I, I love it. I love what I love the. This is all set up so that we can have the regular show, and it makes perfect sense. It all works great. The only thing I don't really like is sometimes, being that it is kind of an anime style studio, there are corners cut that feel like really cheap anime kind of corners cut that you see a lot of if you watch a lot of anime you see these corners cut all the time in animation it's like oh yeah it's not great i feel like voltron is a lot smoother than i think that the, i think that's a showcase of like any for you is not as tight of a studio as uh studio mer is and but at, but you know that's that's a minor these are minor nitpicks overall um uh, I, I think it's very much in line with the Voltron reboot, and I think it's got a lot of potential to go somewhere now. Like, what they've set up feels very much like the early seasons of My Little Pony. I could easily see this taking off afterwards, because I know Voltron really took off at, with the fandom. And I feel like once people have some more time, once we have a second season to showcase what they want to do now, especially since they've announced that there's like three extra 13-episode arcs that they plan on, so there's like four seasons planned, essentially, I interested to see what they do with it because i know there's us there's a ton more they, they they have a chance to introduce the other masters of the universe skeletor could show up um the other uh you know they've got these other uh shira characters that can show up you've got so you can incorporate more of the masters of the universe characters it really feels like a great setup to what will be an, ex, an excellent show and it feels like it has a lot more potential going on the only like there are minor things like the other princesses aren't really well set up i think the most uh, defined one is Perfuma, who is played by Genesis Rodriguez uh, from uh, Big Hero 6. And um, Honey Lemon from Big Hero 6, I should specify. And she's, you know, so she's the most developed of the other princesses besides Glimmer. And the other one's Mermista, the, the water princess, and the... And the ice print, the, little, the, the younger ice princess. And then they've got two that are... Um, uh, Spinnerella and Natasa, I believe. Um, let me double check. 
yeah, Spinnerella and Natasa, who show up in one episode and then come into the climax. And it's like, yeah, we're still here. And it's like, that's a cool joke and everything. But, like, I feel like we should also be learning about them as the season progressed as well. Like, even if, they, even if the main characters didn't take them too seriously, like, they should always kind of be in the background, like, talking to the queen or being involved in the, sh- being involved in the plot in some, in, some, in some way. And, like, it's, it feels really weird that they, the, 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 that's, they did those characters short-shrifted like that, you know? The other princesses, they had some, they got some chances to kind of show off, but it really does feel like the these two minor, like I get they're minor characters from the show, but you know you could you didn't have to like, do them like that. Like you could easily do like Castaspella wasn't a character from the other show, and she only shows up for one episode, but at least you got more out of her than you did Spinnerella and Natasa for the entire season, you know. I feel like that's a. I feel like that was the kind of the weak point in the writing aspect. But you know, otherwise, like the, the relationship between Adora and Catra and Shadow Weaver, how it all fit into Hordak and Catra's eventual, you know, ascension into being uh, being the main villain of the show, uh, working for Hordak, uh, Bo and Glimmer's relationship as friends, and how it relate, how it's almost kind of romantic, but not yet romantic. It could be romantic if they wanted it to be, but we're going to see about that. Um, and Trapta's eventual turn to the Horde. Um, yeah, I mean, it really is... They Frosta. Frosta? Really? Mermista? That's cool. Perfuma is, in, is something. And Trapta... Well, Tra, and Trapta was from the last show. Seahawk was from the last show. Uh, a lot. So, but the other two... Um, yeah, the other... Perfuma and Mermista are solid names. Where... Frosta? Like, not, not, um, you know, uh, Glacia or, um, you know, something there, there, I feel like there's a better, you could do better names comparatively, like Catra. I know they all kind of end in ah, Adora, Catra, um, Angela, and then Scorpia and Trapta. So, I mean, like they, I get the one to the need to end in a, but I feel like you could do better with the ice, like, um, like I said, Glacia or, um, yeah, like, uh, fr- mm, uh, Frozenia, uh, Tun- Tundra, Princess Tundra. I mean, they, it already ends in the A, uh, Permafro- Permafrosta, at least that's kind of continue. It's, it's a little bit longer. So Mermista, Permafrosta, eh, I don't know, uh, and they write, yeah, I like the new backstory. I like the new character designs. The animation can be a bit hit or miss depending on the episode. I love the diverse voice cast. I like that it's not the same people over and over again. I like that it's you've got like not only a diverse voice, you got a diverse cast of characters ranging in and ra- racial background or skin color and body types. You've also got a, a really diverse background of voice actors like uh, Karen Fukuhara, who was um, who kind of was introduced to us as. Uh, Katana in the, in the um, you know, with all the little she had to do in uh, Suicide Squad. Um, AJ Milchaka is Katra, Marcus Script, a couple, a lot of black voice actors. And there's between uh, Lorraine Toussaint, Toussaint, Toussaint as uh, Shadow Weaver, Ke- uh, Keston John as Hordak, um, like I mentioned, Genesis Rodriguez as Perfuma, uh, Vela Lavelle, who was from, um, uh, 
crazy ex-girlfriend is Mermista. Sandra O oh is the is is the is Glimmer's aunt Castaspella. And then like the, the only really recurring um voice actress over the course of the series uh is Greg is Gray Griffin, uh Gray Delisle from uh from our from God, everything. Like she's the bi- probably the most iconic voice actress in this show. Like Kimiko Tomohi Tohomiko in Challenge Showdown, uh, Madam Foster, Duchess, and and Frankie from, uh, yeah, I think she was Madam Foster too uh, from Foster's Home, but definitely Frankie from Foster's Home, Mandy from Grim, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, Sam Manson from Danny Phantom, Vicky from Fairly Odd Parents, uh, she was uh, Azula in Avatar: The Last Airbender. Uh, Queen Butterfly and Jacqueline Tom- Thomas from Star vs. the Forces of Evil. She's been the voice of Daphne Blake for years. So she is, like, one of the most iconic. And she goes by Griffin now uh, because she's been married to Jared Griffin since 2012. So that's um, her go-to voice name, even though she- I grew up with her as Delisle. Uh, at any rate, yeah, she is, she's, the more rec- she's the one who kind of continually recurs uh, as minor characters throughout the show. Uh, but she's more known here as as Madam as Madam Raz, uh, who is turned into essentially like crazy old lady who lives out in the woods. So she gets the chance to play that voice. I think that's her Madam Foster voice, and she doesn't really show up sadly, except for one episode. But I hope she get they use her more often. She's she's a lot of fun. So yeah, uh, Shira, not you know not like five out of five sort of perfect season. But I would absolutely watch more of this. So uh, it sounds like they're. It sounds like it's doing well, and it sounds like we're definitely going to get more out of it. So uh, we'll see. Uh, that about does it for the review portion. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about my thoughts on the fact that we didn't get any new releases this weekend, at least not near me. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one, and alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. listening for a while i've definitely brought up the idea that maybe it's okay i think it was the episode 134 where i talked about the monopolization of ips that the argument that oh because disney bought out fox there's gonna be fewer movies made and released and i'm like "Eh, that's more of a that's more of an industry problem where the where i mean disney definitely has the money to make more movies they would just choose not to but would be really and I mentioned that maybe maybe as an audience member seeing fewer movies is a good thing maybe we don't need a new release every week well this was the week that we didn't get a new release at least not near me maybe LA New York Chicago maybe larger markets got new releases but I did not I we all we got was some people got a couple more I think one more theater picked up at, uh possession of Hannah Grace and all I got to see was the Shin- and then of course the main release at all was the Schindler's List re-release. 
So the only new release near me was a, and it wasn't even everywhere near me. It was only in some places near me at, and the only, and so the only re-release, the only new release was a re-release from a movie 25 years ago. And that brings up the question, am I, now that I've seen the repercussions of not, not having a new release every weekend, is that a, still a good thing? Do I still see the idea of no, of less wide releases being a, being a good thing? And while my podcast hinges on seeing new releases, I feel like I still hold by my statement. I still think that having audiences, not, like, I feel like utilizing theaters for, for like I mentioned last week, where movie, the movies that you should see in theater should be stuff that warrants paying $10 a head to go see. You know, because that's the problem, is that inflation has raised the cost of ticket prices. Not everybody can afford to see tickets, so they have to pick and choose which movies they see. And if that, unless, you know... Unless, you know, wages increase so that people can pay for more things, we're not going to see a real increase. But that's not what this podcast is about. Stay out of politics. It's a movie podcast. (sighs) Anyway. uh, Yeah, the idea that fewer movies is still, I think, a viable uh, idea. Like, the bubble is eventually going to burst. You you need to slow down if you want to if you want to keep the bubble unpopped if you want to keep the bubble from bursting you need to slow down a bit so the idea of making cinema and theatrical releases more need to see events not you know maybe not maybe take every two weeks and make a new release maybe make it you know obviously focus on the holidays when people have more time off but maybe you know maybe not everything needs to be seen in wide release and i still stand by that even though i didn't get a chance to see what are probably going to be some of the big award season pushes i feel like that's okay because sometimes that's sometimes you don't need to see everything in theaters and i think i brought you know i brought that up last week the idea that not everything should be like nobody needed to see position of hannah grace in theaters that was not a theatrically worthy movie. That should have been uh, like Mowgli: Legend of the Jungle was worthy of a theatrical release way more. Buster Scruggs was definitely worthy of a theatrical release way more than Possession of Hannah Grace or Dog Days or any number of the really terrible things I've seen in cinemas. So the idea that there are some good options on streaming that should belong in theaters, yeah. I still stand by that. I still stand by the idea that there are some movies that that could easily be shown in theaters over some other ones. And that overall, yeah, a, a slowdown in releases is ultimately a good thing. Yes, it's not great that not everybody gets to work as much. But at the same time, if you make too much product, nobody's going to be able to see anything because there's too much of a... There's too much supply, not enough demand. Like, speaking just... On that aspect, trying to keep the business afloat by giving everybody a job, like the, I think that was the argument, Daniel. That's not the exact argument. I don't follow Dan Olson anymore, sadly. I just, I just didn't like the guy, honestly, on Twitter. I just feel like whatever his opinions were in movies, that's cool and all. And you know, I'm not saying don't watch the guy, but personally, I just found the guy kind of off-putting and annoying. And it did, and it, I didn't like his take on something. So 
I stopped following him. But as from what I got, his argument with like in, in reference to the Disney um, uh, buyout of Fox was that the fewer movies get made, the fewer people get paid in in the industry. And I understand that argument, but as a consumer, I don't need as much stuff. So maybe instead of give making sure instead of creating a glut of jobs so that people can get paid, maybe ensure that people get paid more for their job for fewer jobs. I feel like that would be a better idea. That way there's few that way I mean, it's not the ideal thing because you want people to continue working, but at the same point you, if the system continues to build to the point where everybody needs to work and they're making stuff just for this, it's like it's like how there are farmers who grow food just to throw it away, just so they they can get paid for growing food. You know, you don't want to make a product that won't be seen just because you need to get paid. That feels that feels very anathema to the idea of creativity. It feels like a, it feels like a problem with capitalism ultimately. Which I feel so the idea that oh no we need we can't have fewer movies being made because then people won't get to live. Well then maybe we should focus on maybe making the maybe making it less about people getting people needing to not people needing to get paid for more jobs and more people need to get paid more for their jobs getting paid higher wages and I don't know if I don't I don't know enough about the industry if that would be even a viable option but. I just know that as a consumer, I cannot viably see everything unless I'm making money to see everything. You know, I'd have to be paid per ticket price in order to make it worth at least in order to just break even for the number of movies I'm seeing in theaters. So the idea of there always being more movies to see, that's cool and all. I I don't want to stifle creativity, but at the same time, there's the, the, the bubble's going to burst. I cannot... And then nobody's going to have any jobs because nobody can see movies anymore because we don't have any money. So how about instead of making more movies that people can't afford to see anymore, how about we slow down until people get make until people can make more money to see more movies? How, you know, then maybe it would make more sense to continually make movies. Otherwise, you're just once again you're like the farmers growing food that nobody will eat just because you need to get paid because it's because. Because we're crazy people, apparently. Capitalism is an insane notion, and we're doing it entirely wrong. Uh, boy. <laughs> I'm talking about topics I have no authority to talk about. Uh, fun. This is a fun podcast about movies. Uh, which brings me to my next topic, though. Um, if there are going to be fewer releases in theaters... Then the other option is to go to TV and streaming op- streaming services. Movie- streaming options like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon making their own content that's not going to be seen in theaters. Which begs the question, does that make them lesser than theaters? Because the- Andy Serkis you know, definitely was upset that his movie was not going to be shown theatrically like he was promised, like, it was, like he was advertised, that it was dumped onto Netflix. And that's unfair to him obviously because it means he put all that hard work in and warner brothers you know turned it into a essentially like a tax write-off you know it's the same thing with it like Kirch network and other shows would do other networks would do in order to save money on what they perceive to be a loss they just dump it somewhere and they write it off so they don't care if it makes money on netflix because then they don't have to worry about making the budget back they just essentially wrote it off 
I don't know if it's officially a tax write-off, because, I mean, it's still got distributed, but it's it's definitely like, we don't believe in this product, so we're going to put it someplace where not as many people will see it. More people would be able to see it in theaters than they would on Netflix, because not everybody has Netflix, or can afford Netflix, or can even viably stream Netflix, because it's not like everybody has has direct access to the internet I mean, think about it. People can drive to a movie theater if they don't have a lot of, if they don't have really high quality internet. Not everybody can stream high. It's the it's the argument that people made in the video game industry when that when like the Xbox One would have to be online compatible because it's like, well, we don't have an Xbox that doesn't have online all the time. It's called the Xbox 360. Remember that BS that happened at the Xbox Xbox One launch? Yeah. And we not when you live in that bubble of the idea that oh everybody has the internet not everybody has good internet not everybody can stream high definition video over the internet we're not there yet we if we want to get there if we want to make streaming more like watching movies then we need to put more effort into having internet for everybody not just people in big cities which is where we are at now if you're in a big city you have better internet hopefully depending on the city i know we're not great internet here either but streaming is not the best option compared to seeing when you like there's still that hierarchy seeing a movie in theaters is better than seeing a movie on streaming which is better than seeing on tv which is which is no it's theater streaming dvd tv i think I think that's the hierarchy. Uh, maybe people in the industry can tell me otherwise, but I presumed the hierarchy was: you want to see it in theaters via wider than wider is better than limited, but seeing it on a big screen is better than not seeing it at all. It's better, you know, is the best option. Then you've got streaming now, which has gotten more clout. Like seeing something on Netflix, or like there was stuff made for Netflix. Like Buster Scruggs, I think, was made for Netflix. It wasn't the same issue of like Andy Circus, where it was intended to be a theatrical release, and then they decided to write it off and put it to Netflix. Buster Scruggs, I think, was made for Netflix. Uh, Beast of the not Beast of the Southern Wild. That's um, Amanda Stenberg's first movie. Uh, uh, Beast with No Nation. Beast with No Nation, the Idris Elba movie from like the very early days of original content on Netflix. That was made for Netflix. Documentaries continue to get made for Netflix. And Amazon, like Amazon Studios, made, paid for the big, um, what was it? The big something. Uh, the uh, the uh, Kumail Nanjiani movie. Uh, the big sick the big sick was made for them uh manchester by the sea say what you will about the late actor but that movie was produced by amazon studios to be shown on amazon prime so there's a higher even within the streaming you want something for having something for netflix or amazon is better than having something for hulu or crackle or god knows what else is out there anymore but um but yeah so you want it to be seen by as many people as possible and right now theaters are the best but not only do you want it to be seen by as many people, but you want it to have clout. Being put on DVD, you know, being released directly to video, that's still seen, I believe, as lesser. Like, there's a reason why when you see um, uh, Nicolas Cage or Bruce Willis or any of these big-named actors in a movie that was released directly to video, you think, oh boy, 
they're in this now. So you don't think, unless they're an actor on the rise, you don't think too highly of the of the movie if a big name actor is in a movie that's released directly to video. Because you think, oh, if it's released directly to video, then it's obviously not very good. You know, same with like TV movies. TV movies get no respect. Even if they're like, there are some excellent TV movies. In fact, I might need to go down a rabbit hole of picking of trying to watch some of the best TV movies ever made, like Duel. Steven Spielberg's first movie was made for like ABC or something, like network TV in the seventies. Duel was a made-for-TV movie, and you know, then you've got like um, Pirates of Silicon Valley, which I hear very good things about. That was the Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs sort of rivalry story, and the Bill, and the rise of Apple and, and Microsoft. I hear very good things about that as well. Uh, Glass, which is which, like that's the thing. If you only see Hayden Christensen in his like major mo- movies, especially after. Um, the Star Wars movies, like that, like he followed that up with freaking uh, Jumper. <laughs> like Hayden Christensen got a real bad rap. Like after Star Wars, that movie, that, that those movies essentially tanked his career because they saw they, they, it was the Robert Pattinson effect. Essentially, it was the the idea that there's this big budget property and you have a pretty decent actor, but because they're giving garbage to say and read, I don't know what you would call it because it's it's all. Um, uh, I don't know what we would call it because it happened in Star Wars. It happened in it happened to Hayden Christensen in Star Wars. It happened to Robert Pattinson and Kristen uh, Stewart in Twilight, and it's hap- and most recently happened to Dakota Johnson and um, uh, what's his name from uh, Jamie Dornan in uh, in Fifty Shades. Like here, are these solid actors, Dakota Johnson after since. Fifty Shades is over. Has proven herself to be a decent actress uh, in Bad Bad Times at the El Royale. And what was the other thing she was just in? Um, oh, God, what was the other thing she was, she was just in? Something that I liked her in. Um, Bad Times at the El Royale. Suspiria. She was the lead in Suspiria. She was in Black Mass, which a lot of people don't. But then at the same time, like Need for Speed. Uh, she was also in the Social Network uh, in a minor role, but and Twenty One Jump Street. I think she was the teacher, but then like she got stuck with. She, then she got Fifty Shades stank on her, and she and she never really. And then she had to kind of make up for that. So now that she now that she's out of that, she's in Suspiria and she's in Bad Times of the El Royale, and she's gonna be in some other stuff. It looks like and some more dramatic stuff, some th- things with more clout. And then I think Jamie, like unfortunately, Jamie jo- Jamie Dornan, I think was in that really stupid Robin Hood movie, so he's still kind of got that stank on him. But uh, oh, he was yeah, she was in Luca Guadagnino's other movie, A Bigger Splash. So like Dakota Johnson, when she's given a good movie can be a good actress. Same with Kristen Stewart. When she's given a good movie, Robert Pattinson, when he's given a good movie, he can be a good actor. But because they had that stank on them, they like that's, and I bring this up because the TV movie Glass, uh, or Shattered Glass, uh, which was about Philip, not Philip Glass, was Philip Glass? It was about um, a journalist who, it was revealed to, it was revealed that he made up so Stephen Glass. Uh, he worked for the New Republic Journal uh, magazine, and he it turned out so many of his articles and um, and so much so much of his writing was fi- was fictitious and made up that he be- that that you saw the rise of this young writer and how he became such a you know such an iconic uh, you know a journalist and then to for, for it to reveal that everything he was telling us was a lie and it's shot and it's a uh, 
Billy Ray, who I'm not familiar with, but he's apparently writing the adaptation of The Devil in the White City for Martin Scorsese. Uh, he also wrote for Color of Night, Volcano, and Hearts War. Uh, it's a, it seems to be a solid enough uh, writer-director. Uh, Suspect Zero, Flight Plan, Breach, State of Play. Uh, the Hunger Games he wrote on, Captain Phillips, Breakup Girls, Secret in Their Eyes. Uh, Overlord. Oh, he wrote... Over, I think he directed Overlord, didn't he? No, that was Julius Avery directed. But he wrote the screenplay for Overlord. So he's... He's definitely, uh, he's also, oh, he also wrote, uh, developed The Last Tycoon for, I believe, HBO, Amazon Studios. Uh, and so, yeah, he's a solid director and he, a solid writer, solid director. And it was Hayden Christensen giving a really excellent performance, but this was right in the midst of Star Wars. So here he was giving this amazing performance as this journalist and the, and the, and his rise and fall, Oh, oh, uh, after it's revealed that he, and this was, ma- and this is like, wait, no, it was released wide. What am I, why did I think it was a TV movie? I swore this was a TV movie, but apparently it was, apparently it was just, uh, wait, is this HBO? Hold on. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Hold on. Who are the producers? In, what are the studios on this? Production distributed? No, distributed by Lionsgate. Well, great. Here's this great movie I thought was a TV movie, but no, it's an actual wide release. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, boy. Uh, maybe it was intended. Maybe it's because I saw it on TV or something. Or somebody showed it and it was like a TV recording or something. But at any rate, yeah, Shattered Glass is a great movie. You should all check it out. Um, but I know that there are good TV movies out there, but... TV movie has a bad, you know, when you when you're dealing with the hierarchy of like it's better now because people can f- move from film to television to streaming. Uh, it's all kind of its own miasma of you know whatever. Because I mean, like, there's really great like Brian Cranston. He could be easily be a film actor only, but he, when he does TV, he can do stuff like either Malcolm in the Middle, which is an acclaimed comedy, or Breaking Bad, which is a, a critically acclaimed and well lauded. Uh, by, and loved by audiences, um, drama. So TV, uh, t- TV can like golden age of television. How many Game of Thrones actors are starting to get film careers out of that show? So I think Jamie Jordan came from Game of Thrones, if I'm not mistaken. Did he? He came. I swear he came from TV somewhere. Let me see. I want to say. Yeah, Jamie Dornan. Once upon a, once upon a time, but oh yeah, he was an anthropoid once again. Good good actor, a good movie, but for but when he's given crap, he's gonna he's gonna be it, it's gonna be crap because even a good actor can't save a crappy movie. Yeah, he was Will Scarlet in Robin Hood. Oof, hey, hey. sorry buddy, but apparently he's gonna be in Trolls World Tour. Weird. Uh, and it, but yeah, Once Upon a Time was kind of his big thing. He was the huntsman, uh, on that show for a couple of seasons. And then The Fall on TV as well, uh, British Irish crime drama. So yeah, he's got a TV actor kind of moving into film and now he's in both film and TV. So once again, the, the lines that we, that used to be drawn between television, like when television first started out, 
it was deemed lesser than. Kind of like once cinema took over, then radio was less than, lesser than, and television was lesser than. You wanted to be on the big screen. But nowadays, as long as the content is good, who cares where it shows up? You know, there are great Netflix series that beat some of the crap on regular television that also beat some of the crap movies on that are, that are aired in theaters. Like, I would much rather watch rewatch She-Ra than rewatch Possession of Hannah Grace. If it's good, that's all that matters, ultimately. And I think people are starting to recognize that. So, I don't think the... I don't think ultimately for actors or creators, it's like the Coen brothers don't care that they made a movie for Netflix because Netflix has the clout to make decent movies. And if they can get somebody with good content, it's like with, um, I consider Netflix and Amazon at this point kind of in the same vein as A24, Neon, these other independent studios that focus on creator-driven content. Blumhouse as well. Uh, they folk, they doesn't matter the budget so much, uh, uh, although some of them do try to keep the budget low because they don't have infinite monies. Which apparently Netflix just prints money out of nowhere. But they also needed to cancel a bunch of shows to keep Friends on. Because apparently Friends was the only thing that was keeping the like keeping the website going. I don't I I don't know Netflix's model outside. Like once after a certain point you only get make so much money from subscribers. It makes you wonder where all the money is coming from. And I'm sure if we look it up it's like oh. Oh that's where the money's coming from. Oh boy. Uh, at any rate... The, yeah, the, the the conceit that movies are are clearly superior, it's kind of gone out the window because it doesn't matter if the content is good where it shows up. If it's on TV, that's great. If it's on streaming, awesome. If it's on if it's in the movies, fantastic. Who cares where it shows up? If it's good, people should watch it. And if it's not good, then people shouldn't watch it, no matter where it is. It's easy and 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 it's just whatever you like and want to watch, you can have it. And that's ultimately kind of what ties me back into my first point. It's okay to have fewer movies in theaters just because there's so much out there. We, I think everybody can kind of just, if we just kind of slow down. I know everybody in Hollywood has to keep going forward and making new stuff to keep the money coming in. But it, maybe it's good creatively to, sh- to just slow down. It's okay to slow down. You know, we don't have to be making... That's, and that's the problem with capitalism. Jim Sterling brings it up with video games all the time. You cannot... You you literally cannot make all of the money. How about we slow down, make what make enough to, to keep going, don't keep pushing it, don't try to... Don't try to continually just make all of the money. Sometimes you can just chill out and i tie that into corporatization the corporatization of hollywood is is ultimately a return to the same studio model where it's now the studios are just corporately run so we're not focusing on content we're not focusing on quality we're focusing on just pumping out content it's it's like the it's like the difference between a youtube channel that makes quality content every other week or so or every month and meanwhile there's there's some dildis making content every single day but it's all garbage not that you can't make good content every single day, but people who people will tell you if you make content for every single day, it's a it burns you out way quicker than if you're just doing it as a side project or something, or you're putting more effort into it. But but at the same time, like you have to keep pumping out content, make make everything every day, release five videos a day, or you won't make any money. And it's like holy crap, dude, just 
Can't we just chill? And apparently, no. We cannot... You, there is no chill when under capitalism. Capitalism has no chill! Mm. Right then. Enough of the socialism variety hour here on Popcorn Junkie. Let's talk about uh, the, last, the, the recent week in movies. Let's see if anything's changed, shall we? And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. So it turns out that the re-release actually didn't do anything. Like, the Schindler's List re-release didn't even open in the top ten. More people went to see the Nutcracker in the Four Realms than went to go see Schindler's List again. And I think it's, I think it's just because Schindler's List ultimately is not a movie people want to go see in theaters. You know, it's not an enter- it's not a crowd pleaser. It's it's very much a, it's very much you know it's very much a, 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 it's almost like an art movie in and of it. You know, it's, if you think about it. So yeah, it's only in a thousand. It's actually in a lot a fewer theaters. More people went to see The Favorite. Um, the, the movie about the Queen of England uh, and with uh, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz. Uh, and that was in less than 100 theaters. And more people went to see that than they did Schindler's List, which was in 1,000 theaters, which, oof. That, that's, I mean, at the same time, people kind of like, oh, I already saw that before. I can see it on the video. Why would I pay $10 to see it in theaters? It's just the problem with re-releases is that in the, with the advent, it made sense in like the 70s and 80s when there was no home video. But with the advent of home video, what is the point of a re-release other than for, like, film snobs to be like, oh, I saw this on the big screen, the way it was meant to be seen. Ooh, yes. Ugh. Anyway, we're looking at the top seven. Uh, we saw some dropouts. Position of Hannah Grace dropped precipitously. Uh, Robin Hood 2018 stayed the same. Meanwhile, Green Book jumped from number 10 to number 7 as it saw an increase in theater count. And I guess it's seeing some more people you know it'd be more people are wanting to see it and i could i called this generation's driving miss daisy essentially because it it, it it handles racism just about as well from what i can from what i've heard and it's but even if it's like a crowd pleaser movie it's not exactly a great commentary on race relations or anything like that it's like okay it's yeah it's a it's a cool movie Viggo mortensen and marshall ali are good so okay that's all you wanted sure uh, staying at number six, Instant Family. Uh, oh, uh, Green Book brought in $3.9 million, which uh, brings its domestic gross so far up to $19.9 million. And even with the foreign markets, it can't, doesn't hasn't broken $20 million. So it's not a big success still. It's only been like, what, though? Two weeks? Three weeks? Four weeks for Green Book. Woof! So yeah, it hasn't broken out, broken its budget yet, which... We'll see. We'll see if the award season kind of helps that push. Uh, meanwhile, Instant Family brought in five point six, which brings its domestic gross up to fifty four million, and its and its worldwide gross up to sixty million. So it finally made back its budget. It, it may end up being a success, just because some people like this crap. I I, I don't know. I guess people were felt you know felt the heartstrings. It's like it's a, it's it's a family. It's stuff that your mom would probably like, you know, and. If you once again, if you like it, cool, man. It's just like once again, I would much rather watch Shira or Ballad of Buster Scruggs, even the worst parts of Ballad of Buster Scruggs, than ever see another frame of Instant Family again. Bohemian Rhapsody stayed at number five, brought in six million this weekend, brings its domestic gross up to one hundred seventy-three point five million, and its worldwide gross up to five, almost six hundred million dollars. So 
people love their queen. Still love their queen after all these years. Fantastic Beasts stayed the same at $6.8 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to 145 and its worldwide gross up to $568.5 million. So, yeah, people still love their Harry Potter. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Creed stayed at number three, uh, brought in $10.3 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $96.4 million and its worldwide gross up to $119 million. So it did make back its money over the course of the Thanksgiving and following weekend. Um, so I don't know if they'll do I know um, I did see a story that Stephen, Stephen, Sylvester Stallone uh, was considering stepping down for the character of Rocky and kind of retiring from that role, which... You know, I kind of I, I, I'm curious if they'll write him out of the third mo- Creed movie, or if they'll he'll do like a final send off of Rocky. If they'll do like what they did with Mickey, where you know it's him on his deathbed or something, and that's and that's when Rocky passes away, and it's now fully Adonis's movie. We'll see. We'll see what the, if they even plan to do a follow up, or if they just just even with all the two, even with the two really good Creed movies that have kind of revitalized the franchise, if they'll just be like, oh, screw it, Bang, reset button. Uh, meanwhile, staying at number two, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch brought in $15.1 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $223 million and its worldwide gross up to $322 million. America loves illumination. Thankfully, the rest of the world, uh, rest of the world hasn't gotten on board, but America still loves these assholes. Oh, well. Anyway, staying at number one. Uh, even though it's the highest grossing movie this weekend only earned $16 million. But yeah, Ralph Breaks the Internet brought in $140.8 million and has a worldwide gross of $258 million. So it made back its budget. I It doesn't seem to be doing too well, sadly, com- uh, compared to... Well, let's see, what was it? What was it? Uh, what was it this point and the last last uh, one so this has been out for three weeks uh after three weeks it brought in 121 million dollars so it actually made more although it might be slightly higher due to inflation uh but yeah it doesn't look like people are too into wreck it ralph uh still even with the advent of the internet oh that one did better overseas too so i I'm I'm beginning to think that maybe it's just because, and we'll see. Maybe it holds on till the Christmas, and you know if it holds on till Christmas, maybe people, maybe it'll make back it. Maybe it'll be considered successful because once again, it takes your budget t- times two to counteract uh, any sort of marketing that the that the studios do. Uh, the 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 production budget is not the full cost of the movie. So, 175 million. It. Barely made that back in America. Only made it back overseas. We'll see if it manages to break 320 million. Let's see. 350 million? 150 million plus two. Yeah. 350 million. If it can break that, it'll be it'll have broken even. But it will still not be a major success. And the original Wreck-It Ralph cost a little bit less and made back almost $500 million in 2012. So I think it's just a matter of Wreck-It Ralph ultimately... Um, and, of course, you compare this to the likes of the other uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios so far. Um, Ralph Breaks the Internet uh, as still behind the original Ralph. 
but Tangled, Big Hero 6, Moana, Zootopia, Frozen, those have all done amazingly well so far. And really, Ralph Breaks the Internet has, has done better than Bolt, Princess and the Frog, Meet the Robinsons, and Winnie the Pooh. And then if you adjusted for, even adjusted for, okay, here we go. Adjusted for inflation, Wreck-It Ralph brought in $215 million. Still made back its, made back its budget, uh, domestically speaking. But meanwhile, this new one just, you know, it just barely edged out Bolt when you adjust for inflation from 2008 to 2018. So, yeah, it, it really can't compete sadly like and then when you add in the worldwide markets princess frog is still doing better than 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 ralph 2 and bolt so this is really only if you would just if you add in the worldwide markets the only thing ralph breaks the internet is doing better than is meet the robinsons and i still adhere that this was because of the um of the uh the whole internet memeing thing, the whole idea that this is basically the Disney's the emoji movie. I feel like that was the wrong way to go. The story was better, but when you try to tie it into yourself and be meta and be and, and talk about the internet, you already sound dated. So even though it was the second half was really great, it's still just a man. It still just feels very much like your your you know, uncle you know Uncle Walt coming in, being like, "Hey, fellow kids." I'm into what you're into, hey? Yeah? Aren't I great? And he has some good lines in there, and he still kind of gets it, but then ultimately, like, nah, nah, man. You really just, you don't really get it, old man. Kind of ease up. So we'll see. Frozen 2 is going to come up. I'm sure that'll make whatever Wreck-It Ralph 2 lost, so whatever. Yeah, Frozen 2 is coming out next year. Yeah, look forward to that one. (laughs) who Who knows? It could be good. Hey, maybe they'll actually make Elsa gay, like people have been wanting. Uh, uh, anyway, let's talk about what's coming up next. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. I want to preface this because for those of you who caught the early... Uh, release of my episode last week. This is actually taken from that episode because I accidentally led with this week's releases in that episode, in last week's episode, because I didn't realize that nothing was coming out this week besides Schindler's List. So this is from last week's episode, technically, but here are my reactions to what's coming out this week in theaters. We've got four major releases this week. Uh, the first one is actually a re-release it is 20th Century Fox cashing in on a joke, which is the PG-13 cut of Deadpool 2, titled Once Upon a Deadpool. Let's take a look at that trailer. Right before Christmas, a good guy in red is coming to theaters with his new sidekick, Oh. Fred. God, Fred Savage looks so old. Why am I here? You're in a PG-13 version of Deadpool. Filtered through the prism of childlike <laughs> innocence. I'm a grown And nobody man. does childlike innocence like you, Fred. Nobody. I need you almost as much as you need me. <laughs> I need me to untie you. <laughs> this December, for the first time, Deadpool Hi. is PG-13. I loved your working up. I'm sorry? Don't get too attached. What? <laughs> Once upon a Deadpool. Gotta prefer Marvel movies. We are Marvel. Yeah, but you're, you know, Marvel licensed by Fox. It's like if the Beatles were produced by Nick. Oh. It's music, 
but it sucks. <laughs> you were nicer as a kid. Rated PG-13. Limited engagement in theaters December 12th. That, that looks like fun. They're definitely having a, some fun with it, and I hope it doesn't, you know, justify future Deadpool movies being PG-13, but having having this tongue-in-cheek uh, version of the movie, it's not a bad... It's a, it's a nice thing. I mean, it's, a, it's clearly a joke, but... We'll see how it plays uh, in execution. And then for the major releases, first up, speaking of Marvel licensed by another studio, it is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse from Sony Animation. Let's check out that trailer. My name is Peter the voice for Peter always kind of sounds off. I think it's because he sounds so much older. Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. Heh. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. Uh, it feels so good to have a Miles Morales, uh, movie, you know? Yeah, I know that. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. Look at this one. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a good That's adorable. My name is Miles Morales. I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear the Super Collider? You're gonna love this. Ooh. You're like me. That's impossible. This Christmas. All right, kid, listen up. This fry is your universe. It's soggy, it's weird, it's gross. And this delicious normal fry is my universe. So you want to learn to be Spider-Man. Can you teach me? Yes, I can. Time to swing. Good, you're doing it. Double tap to release and swip it out again. Okay. Swip and release. You're a natural. Swip. And then, of course, Spider-Gwen. Hey, guys. Who are you? I'm Gwen Stacy. From another, another dimension. How many more Spider-People are there? Spider-Man, Nicholas Cage. This could literally not get oh, wait weirder. for it. It can get weirder. Okay. I love that. Get back to our universes soon. Brooklyn is going to collapse. My family lives in Brooklyn. Whoa, 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 whoa. Miles, what's wrong? This was never your city. Scorpion, Green Goblin. Do animals talk in this dimension? Because I don't want to freak. <laughs> God. The Spider-Verse is so crazy. And yet it works perfectly in execution. I think it, what, what makes it even better is that because it's animated, you see the different styles of animation. Spider-Man War doesn't look like the uh, spider, uh, the, the anime girl, uh, the, you know, the anime girl uh, in the spider robot, who doesn't look like Spider-Ham, who doesn't look like Peter Parker, uh, Miles Morales, or Gwen Stacy. They all have these unique styles to them based on their universe. And... It, the, the style itself is very comic booky, and it, it 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 feels like the best thing Sony could do with Spider-Man without the MCU. You know, so if the, I would prefer this to more Venom movies personally. So we'll see how it turns out in execution. It could easily be terrible, but this could just this could be the best thing Sony Animation has done. The best thing that Sony's done with Spider-Man. We'll see. Uh, that's coming out this weekend, and then following that up is. 
uh, Peter Jackson trying steampunk. This They're really pushing this, but damn if it doesn't look like a flop. So anyway, Mortal Engines. Let's take a look. I was eight years old. I think this is what cinches it, too. This monologue makes it <laughs> makes it sound like it's such it's sound like it's a flop waiting to happen. No one day everything changed. Oh hey Hugo Weaving. You're too good for the red skull. That's what I don't get about some actors. He would have killed me too. I do like that she that our main character, our heroine, isn't traditionally pretty. She looks lived in. She looks like she's, you know, she has experienced hell, and that her, you know, she's she's got scarring and you know disfiguration. That she's not perfect. That this world has kind of done its damage. It's a cool concept too. The idea of these that cities are mobilized now. And that, it's, and that you have, and that there's no more water, so that you got, the cities have to travel for resources by consuming other cities. Before she died, your mother told me she was afraid of Valentine. But yeah, the story feels so cliche. Feels like this feels like it's a young adult novel adaptation. It may be. She could be a problem if she's anything like a mother. Keep it safe. What happens when you find Hester Shaw? I will. He's here. This December. In the great game of survival, this is checkmate. I knew you wouldn't leave me. Shut up and run. You sure you want to do this? I have to. For my mother. You look at her, and all you see are the jagged edges. But she is something quite different. She is beautiful and strange. And very, very rare. God, this reeks of... Wait a second, hold on. Yep, based on the book. That That's it. That's what it is. That that's that, I think that's what it, that's what even though it's Peter Jackson producing, he's throwing all of his clout be- behind it. He's even doing interviews saying like, "Good guys, gotta check out this movie." This reeks like a wannabe Harry Potter. Like it, tr- it feels like it's wanting to ride the trend of young adult fiction adaptations, and it clearly is not. It, the story just isn't there. I think maybe the book plays out better, but whatever happened, it's just not doesn't look very appealing. So we'll see if it's good in execution. If it's great, great. If not, eh, yeah, kind of cool. It it wouldn't be surprised if we called it. So uh, last up, uh, last wide release for the weekend is one that I've been seeing a little push for, but not a lot. And that is uh, the latest from Clint Eastwood, The Mule. Let's take a look. I only got one trailer for this this whole time. And it's a solid trailer too, so they didn't feel the need to like really push it like Mortal Engines or or Spider Man. Oh. Need help, sir? Oh, uh, officer, hi. You need help? Uh, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. What do you got there? 
I'm going to miss Clint Eastwood. I mean, the, I mean, the dude and I were never going to get along, like, personally, but... And I feel sorry for Peacock. Like, the dude, he's got charisma. Like, that's the thing. Compare him to his son, Scott. Scott Eastwood does not have the charisma or the, the that sort of vim, that, that sort of personality of his dad. He's kind of like a cheaper version. He's like a knockoff of his dad. Don't do what I did. His, Clint Eastwood is, even, even though his son is trying to, you know, Become an, you know, be an actor in his own right. There just won't be another guy like him. Somebody out there than the damn failure I was in my own home. Was a terrible father, terrible husband. Diane Weist as his wife. You got Michael Pena in here. Lawrence Fishburne. I didn't deserve Bradley Cooper. This is the last one. Who else is in this? So help me God. This is the last one. This this really is a solitary. Clint Eastwood. Is that Robert De Niro or is that like Tommy Lee Jones? We'll see. I'll check. Let me check the cast list at the end. For what it's worth, I'm sorry for everything. The Mule. Nobody runs forever. Bradley Cooper, Michael Pena, Andy Garcia. That's who that is. Um. Yeah. This. This is a solid. That was a solid trailer. You've got the 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 muted piano melody, and then then when it's not the piano, it's like it's almost like a droning of bees or like just just it's clearly building this tension that you're waiting for it to pop, and it, it you've got and, the, and it shows you exactly what you need to know. It without and none of it with with the dialogue. You've got. Clint Eastwood essentially reading uh, like a final letter to his wife, apologizing for everything. But but what you see through the visuals is what you need to know. The fact that he, you've got uh, Clint Eastwood is as an elderly man who is a drug mule, and he gets caught up in with like the FBI or the DEA and law enforcement, and it's up to him you know, to kind of bring down the. The drug lords, and it's it's riding that line between what he needs to do to to protect his family and, and what he has to do to survive. And it looks interesting. We'll see how it plays out. But yeah, we're, I, whatever your thoughts are, I mean, Clint Eastwood is obviously not going to be a guy. He, he and I are from different eras, and we're just not going to. We're not. We can, we're we're. He's like my dad in that we're never going to see eye to eye. But I don't think he is so terrible as to be be you know whereas mike um mel gibson is like complete trash i always got the feeling that clint eastwood was was just always that kind of guy that old school kind of uh ideals kind of guy and so he i think he ultimately you know he ultimately you know screwed himself you know made him made a fool of himself 
And I think that's why he's kind of st- stayed clear of being publicly, you know, being public about his political endorsements and focused more on just making the, making movies. And I feel like we kind of got what he th- what his ideas were. What he, we kind of got what got what his beliefs were, but we didn't, you know, we didn't. Need, he, I think after that, he kind of got the idea that I'm not good at this. You know, I, I want to show I want to show my support, but this is not my forte. I should just focus on what I do best. And it's going to be interesting to see um, him tackle. I hope it's not. I hope I hope like, sometimes you've got directors who their politics will always eke into their their product and into their film. But I I it. But I don't think that'll be the. I don't know if he's directing. Who's who's directing this? Is it him or is it? Somebody else. Is he just the star? Let me see. He is directing, uh, based on, inspired by the New York Times article, the, the Sinaloa Cartel's 90-year-old drug mule. Ooh. And then uh, Nick Schenk is the writer. Uh, Nick Schenk wrote for Narcos, wrote Gran Torino, wrote The Judge. So this is a dude who's worked with... Um, Worked with uh, Clint Eastwood before, who was written for uh, who, who knows enough about uh, the cartel and about the drug trade to write for Narcos, and yeah, so this should be fun. this should be decent. Uh, yeah, ninety-year-old horticulturist and World War II vet is caught transporting three million dollars worth of cocaine through Michigan for a drug for a Mexican drug cartel. It looks interesting, and yeah, you've got Andy Garcia. Um, Tysa Farmiga, uh, Vera Farmiga's sister, is in this. Michael Pena, Allison, Allison Eastwood, uh, seems to be the daughter, I guess. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Diane Weist, Clifton Collins Jr. Um, yeah, so it looks solid. It looks, it, it's a great, it's a great trailer. I'm kind of glad that they didn't feel the need to do any more trailers because that first one was so well put together that I feel like it got the point across perfectly. And we'll see how it turns out. Like even it, how old is he? Uh, he was born any day now. I am to be. Come on, come on, come on, internet. Born nineteen thirty. So he, so he is currently. He's he is about to turn ninety. Like in two years, he is eighty eight. Uh, no, he he yeah, he's eighty eight right now. Uh, he'll turn eighty nine next year, and. Yeah, so he's this is right up his alley, and it it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. And and if he's still making really good movies into his nineties, that's a, that that that's a that's just a showcase of just how good of a good of a creator he is. You know, good of a director and good of a you know good of a filmmaker he is that he's able to make good content even into his even pushing ninety. So we'll see. Uh, that'll be coming out this weekend. All right, now that we have the actual new releases all set up for this week's episode, it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to favorite us in your, t- in your browser and, you know, be sure to whitelist us in your ad blocker. And be sure to check out all of our other fine programming. Uh, I, I mentioned this on the previous episodes of, of Living in the Stacks. We're moving to a monthly format and we're taking the holidays off. So that ep- that podcast will will resume after the holidays, and uh, we'll be back in, on January fifteenth. 
but you can also check out all of the other stuff with uh, Donna and the Snarkcast community. I believe uh, Van is doing, um, still doing the, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Odd Vegas podcast uh, while uh, she's working in uh, Las Vegas Oddities. And then I do want to talk, I do need to talk to her about starting, because people have been liking the pop, uh, Phantom of the Podcast, uh, and we should probably do a soft reboot like we, like Mike and I did with Majiday. I'll have to talk to her at some point, but once I get things situated on my end that I can afford to bring in, to start redoing that again. Because the other thing, too, I need to, Mike, Mike has been dealing with the fallout of the, uh, the fires in California, so keep him in your thoughts, and... Uh, help him out on his stream, game, on his Game Kiwi stuff. That's his main. That's his main kind of bread and butter. Uh, he and I do Maji Day on the side, so we might pick up Maji Day pretty soon. He and I need to talk about it, but he's been having trouble on his end. Uh, and of course, we've been having trouble kind of setting up um, recording recording time. So we'll this this new season hasn't gone too well. We've only gotten one episode out, but we'll try to get it back up and running maybe next year sometime. Hopefully, uh, he and I need to talk about that. But you know, if you don't want, if you don't listen to us through your browser, you can find us on your various podcast providers. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, through Spreaker, Stitcher. And if you want to, and we're trying, I'm, if I'm, I'm hoping to try and get up on Podbean pretty soon. Make that like a Patreon, also Patreon style donation thing as well, where you can find not only the main feed but the extra stuff. Not if you don't want to use Patreon, um, but uh, unfortunately that. I can't sign up for that just yet. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if I can do that pretty soon. Uh, at any rate, uh, you can also uh, it's a, as wherever you're fi- wherever you're listening to this on mobile devices, whatever your podcast provider is, be sure to leave a five star rating and review and let people know that they, that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also do that by following us on social media. Uh, the social media home for Popcorn Junkie is Facebook.com/slash Popcorn Junkie. As well, the main announcements are going to be new episode announcements and may, you know any kind of major changes coming to the podcast. You can all find you can find that there. You can find me on Twitter where I'm more active, where I do the munchalongs. You, if you if you were following me there, you can caught you caught you probably caught my munchalong for both Mowgli and um, Buster Scruggs. The uh, I didn't get to Outlaw King sadly, but maybe. If I ha- maybe if there's another slow week, I'll try to check that out. Uh, but yeah, if you want to follow me there, I'm at Corn Junkie Pod. You can that's where I do the Twitter munchalongs and as well as the tw- Twitter trailer talks, where I comment on the new release trailers and the theaters. And I and you can also follow me on Instagram. I'm not as active there. I still have no idea what to do with Instagram. Um, I don't know if you have a suggestion for what to do with Instagram. Uh, if you just want to follow me for little, you know, for S, for uh, for a spits and giggles sat, uh, to keep things kind of clean, or uh, you can do so at Popcorn Junkie Podcast on on Instagram. And then if you want to follow me on Stardust, I've been a little bit more active there. Uh, Stardust has been uh, giving away, um, has been kind of doing raffle system for. Uh, new release tickets so if they showcase a new trailer and they'll give away free tickets for people who react to it so i've been doing that i've been doing some more trailer talks on stardust and uh then you could also see my initial reactions to stuff that i've been watching over the weekend i didn't do the netflix stuff i only did schindler's list i'll do netflix uh this week sometime but yeah if you want so if you want to follow me there uh you can do so at popcorn junkie and then if you want to follow some of the other cool people there the double toasted guys are there I'm sure there's uh, the Schmo Snows guy, and of course the King of Stardust himself, the Internet's other John Bailey, uh, with an I, John Bailey with an I, 
uh, he is there as epic voice guy, and he is the best reactioner, uh, reactor on Stardust. He his channel is the best bar none. I have yet to see another channel be as good at rea- at reacting to stuff as his. He has mastered the platform. But you can also find other people there, and if you want to react to stuff as well, you can do so. Come and join us on Stardust. We're a fun community. We have a lot of fun over there. You should too. And if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, comments on what I've talked about, corrections, if I've made a mistake, please correct me. Or if you just want to, you know, share in your, share your thoughts, maybe dissenting opinions, whatever it is, you can send that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want it to be read out on the podcast and not just paraphrased or mentioned, please make, leave, a, leave, a, please leave the wording. I give you my, my permission to use this on the podcast somewhere in the message of the letter. Or even in the subject. I, you know, I don't want to use it without your permission. So as long as you give me explicit permission, I will use it. Otherwise, I'll just mention it. And that about does it. So until next time, I'm John Bailey. And I cannot promise that next week's episode won't have more socialism talk. Sorry. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not familiar enough with the book. I don't know what point. I thought it. I, I, I remember looking this up. Um, hold on. I remember what. I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a thing. What's wrong with the thing that I'm doing? What's wrong with the thing that I'm doing? My own little Bagheera is in the studio, so let me cut this. I would own that book. Um, what? I'm doing a thing. Why are you bugging me? Why are you bugging me? This is the second time you've come to bug me. I give you food. I clean your litter. It made sense when I was doing the jungle book because you're like a little kitty. You're a kitty. You're like my little Bugira. But why are you doing this? Why are you interrupting the thing? People are pay- people are people are trying to listen, and you're doing and you're doing this to me. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this? Why why would you do this to me? Please stop, please stop. <laughs>